The Connection Between Surveillance and Disappearance, today, Wednesday, June 19th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. President Obama tries to reassure Europeans about U.S. data gathering. We'll hear how Europeans have long been more focused on human intelligence rather than technology. Plus, we get tips from a privacy expert on how to drop out of sight. I mean, if you're a regular person, you wouldn't put a billboard on the side of the road with your picture up and your kids' pictures and what school you went to and, you know, your home phone number. Why do it online? Also today, Brazil steps up security ahead of two major sporting events the World Cup and the Olympics. Some in Brazil wonder if they're ready for the worst. Front page news on the, the kind of weekly news magazines. Are we prepared? So the, the, the Boston thing was a real eye-opener. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman in Boston. This is The World. It's not just Americans who want an explanation from President Obama about U.S. government surveillance programs. So do many Europeans. And today in Germany, President Obama tried to address that. Our current programs are bound by the rule of law and they're focused on threats to our security, not the communications of ordinary persons. They help confront real dangers and they keep people safe here in the United States and here in Europe. The president was referring, of course, to the NSA's recently revealed data mining operations, which collect vast amounts of information about both international phone and Internet traffic. That raised concerns among many Europeans about possible intrusions into their privacy. Investigative reporter Sebastian Rotella of ProPublica is in Europe, where he's been talking with various intelligence agencies. Uh, So, Sebastian, what's their reaction to these NSA revelations? Well, it's an interesting mix of reactions. I think in general, among people who are involved in intelligence and counterterrorism, there's a bit of surprise. I think they're surprised that this is such big news and is seen as as, as scandalous in the sense that this is something that they've known about for some time and they had the impression that it was reasonably well known in the United States and they understood it to be generally something that's that's within the law. Um, And I think people, again, who are in this profession are quite aware of the, the high-tech uh, counterterror capacities of U.S. intelligence agencies because they have benefited from them, in fact. Well, we'll, we'll talk about the cooperation between uh, the U.S. and Europe intelligence agencies in a sec, but let's dig into what the big differences are between the, the American approach to intelligence gathering and the European approach. I, I explain the big differences. Well, and we're talking here specifically and particularly about uh, when it comes to Islamic terrorism. Right. So, in general, the Europeans have had to really develop webs of domestic intelligence that are quite aggressive by U.S. standards and quite um, widespread, and there's much more emphasis on developing a lot of human sources that are well-placed in in mosques, in, uh, in, in extremist networks, in, uh, in bookstores, in, in, in all kinds of in, in neighborhoods. There's just but the way that uh, people watch networks, the way that these agencies watch these networks is much more through having sources. Obviously, there's, there's intercepts and wiretaps as well, but you just don't have 
these incredible uh, technological capacities to to vacuum up lots and lots of information to the way the U.S. does. So the, the, the U.S. The, the European approach has always been more uh, at the street level. The, the distinction you, you would say is really between uh, human intelligence gathering in Europe and and signal intelligence gathering here, kind of like the metadata that we've been hearing about. So it, does that imply kind of a disconnect between American and European uh, intelligence? Are they able to talk the same spy language? I think they do actually complement each other well. In fact, I've covered a lot of cases uh, where it's interesting to see the interplay where there is reasonably good teamwork, and that has increased enormously out of necessity in the decades since uh, since 9-11. So, Sebastian, uh, give us a few uh, juicy bits here. What, what are some of the terror plots that have been foiled thanks to U.S. and European cooperation? One I know about pretty well was an interesting network in 2007 that uh, it was a, a terrorist uh, cell of Frenchmen and Belgians that coalesced uh, around a woman named Malika El Arud, who was kind of an icon in Al-Qaeda because her husband in 2001 had carried out a suicide bombing that had killed an anti-Taliban uh, leader in Afghanistan. But what was interesting, this happened over the course of about a year and a half, was that they were being watched every step of the way, both by sort of on-the-ground surveillance by the Belgians and the French, but also NSA and other kinds of U.S. intercepts allowed investigators to track the evolution of this group and of this threat in almost real time. Um, so that, and then there are quite a few cases like that where you have, it's actually the American services that come to the, the Spanish or the Swiss and say, we are aware of these two extremists who are talking about nefarious activities by the internet. And they know that not because they have sources on the ground in Europe, but because there is monitoring through the computer servers in the United States. So there, there's a number of cases where you see this kind of teamwork almost by necessity when these networks are global. Uh, function that way. Sebastian Rotella, investigative reporter with ProPublica, speaking with us from Spain. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Frank A. Hearn knows a thing or two about privacy. He's made a career of finding people, collecting debts, serving papers, locating spouses who've skipped town. Reverse engineered, this has also made A. Hearn something of an expert on disappearing and led him to a new career, helping people drop off the grid. In fact, he's written a book on it called, not surprisingly, How to Disappear. We tracked Frank Ahern down in Portugal. Wasn't too hard finding you, Frank. I'm sure you can make it hard if you wanted to. Give us first your Disappearing Act rating for Edward Snowden, the man who leaked the NSA surveillance business. How's he done so far? Zero. Uh, he, he's put him first. Thanks for having me. He, he, didn't, he didn't have a plan. He just picked up and split. And the problem is he's looking to depend on a country to take him in, and you can't always trust that country. I think if I was him, I would have just gone totally off the grid and disappeared for good. And so how do you actually make somebody disappear? How do you help them? Well, the first question you always have to answer is how are you going to make a living where you're going? And once we can figure that part out, um, the, the best example is like a victim of a stalker who needs to leave because her ex is going to kill her or something like that. You know, the, when you're looking for somebody, you're looking to find someone, you're always, you look for the information they left behind. So I kind of take that information and, you know, manipulate it, uh, change her, deviate her name, maybe on the utility company, you know, different forwarding addresses, you know, different contact information. 
and then using online information for disinformation, you need to make sure that the person looking for them is looking in the wrong places. So they're looking for the information they left behind. And for example, I would have them open up a bank account and give me the debit card. And I would take that debit card, send it to a friend of mine in Toronto. And every Tuesday, they go and buy stuff at the supermarket. Plus, you know, I'll have you apply for an apartment at a location online. It's important to keep the predator looking. I mean, we had a science fiction writer on the program last week who said he does not use Facebook and cautioned everyone about the voluntary information uh, we fork over about ourselves on social media sites like Facebook. What are the easiest things people can do to protect themselves and their identities? I think the most important thing to do is, you know, stop the social networking. I mean, and I agree with where the, the uh, writer was. We don't know what this information is going to be used for. And, uh, you know, the NSA just might be utilizing it. And I, I say, if you're in business, I understand social media. I understand Twitter. I understand Facebook. But, I mean, if you're a regular person, you wouldn't put a billboard on the side of the road with your picture up and your kids' pictures and what school you went to and, you know, your home phone number. Why do it online? I, I look at information like gold, okay? And if you had gold, you wouldn't just give it away that easy. And that's the way I see it. You ever wanted to disappear yourself, Frank? Every day of my life. Uh, it's, <laughs> uh, it's, you know, I, I'm in such a crazy, crazy business. You know what I'm saying? And I see this as like a limited run. And eventually I'll just find my way out of it and drift off to someplace I want to be. Frank Ahern, privacy expert, author also of How to Disappear. Frank, you're going to disappear on us now? Thank you very much, man. Have a great day. Okay. Thanks, you too. Bye. I guess he disappeared. Well, the protests continue in Brazil. Today, demonstrators clashed with police near the soccer stadium in Fortaleza, one of the venues for next year's World Cup. The billions the government is spending to prepare for events like the World Cup and the 2016 Olympics in Rio is a big source of popular anger. At the same time, organizers are sparing no expense to ramp up security for those events. They're not just preparing for civil unrest. There's also the threat of terrorism. The world's Jason Margolis has more on that from Rio. I spoke with a lot of people in Rio and asked, could something like the Boston Marathon bombings happen here? Here's how most everybody answered. We don't have this kind of problems. We have other problems, not, not this kind of problem. Renato Cosentino is with the human rights organization Global Justice. He and many Brazilians often talk about crime concerns, but terrorism is something that happens in far-off places. The Boston bombings did rattle some nerves, though, says Tim Vickery, World Soccer Magazine's South American correspondent. It's front-page news here. Front-page news on the, the kind of weekly news magazines. Are we prepared? The group responsible for planning the Olympics, Rio 2016, has expressed full confidence in hosting a safe event, a point echoed by government officials at various levels. Tim Vickery says that vote of confidence is largely justified because authorities here have lots of experience dealing with mass events, such as Rio's Carnival every year. They know the vulnerable points in their city. It's a huge show of strength on the streets. But the level of sophistication needed to combat a terrorist threat, that's something that they're not particularly used to. So so for that, the Brazilians are looking to outside help, people like Jim McGee with the Sufan Group, a security consulting firm headquartered in New York. McGee spent two decades with the FBI working a lot of big sporting events. He said terrorism may seem like an exotic threat to most Brazilians, but there is reason for concern. When you invite the world to your country, you invite not only all of the sporting teams and the fans, but you invite 
most of the problems that are occurring globally as well. He compares the situation in Brazil today to Greece, which hosted the Olympics nine years ago. In 2004, we brought over, and when I say we, I mean the FBI, we brought over uh, subject matter experts that we were able to embed right with their counterparts so that they had uh, you know, our experts right there in an advisory role in the event of an incident or a crisis. He hopes the FBI, along with British, Australian, and Israeli security experts, will be in Brazil as well. Rio State police officers are already working with the FBI and Spanish police, exchanging information about things like anti-terrorism tactics and chemical threats. In Rio, the city government recently opened a new command and control center, a facility spurred by the upcoming Olympics. It is here that the 70 operators alternate during different shifts to monitor the city's operation. Over 400 cameras installed at strategic points I took a tour of the control center with Victor De Marchino, who works for the city. We stood on a balcony overlooking about 30 people who are watching the TVs. But these guys that are responsible for the cameras, they can zoom in and zoom out in the cameras, they can turn around, they can... This room was designed primarily to monitor traffic and weather incidents, such as threats from mudslides. The state government just opened its own control center nearby, solely dedicated to security. But it's all integrated, said Di Marchino. One of these guys might say, well, there's something weird there. And then they're going to call that guy on the left, who is the guy from the police, you know, in the gray suit. And then they can use this information. Di Marchino adds there will be many more cameras trained on Olympic facilities. Security expert Jim McGee says these eyes all around are critical for mega sporting events. In Boston, for example, surveillance cameras helped identify the alleged marathon bombers. You know, in London, you can't go anywhere where you're not under the view of a camera, and that contributed to why the London Olympics went so well. McGee says so far, overall, Brazil is taking the necessary steps to meet the security challenges posed from outside threats. That's reassuring, but it is coming at a steep cost. Street protesters in Brazil this week have been railing against the tens of billions of dollars being spent on preparations for the upcoming mega-sporting events. Precise spending figures are fungible, as is the specific security budget. Anyway, you add it, though, Tim Vickery says for many Brazilians, all this hassle and cost just isn't worth it. We were quite happy in our, in our little backwater, in our little tropical backwater, not having any, any enemies. <laughs> so uh, there is a downside to hosting the world. Of course, there's an upside, too. If the World Cup and Olympics go off without a hitch, billions of people will see Brazil at its finest. Then maybe some of the costs and preparations won't seem so severe. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Rio. Hope you like bumpy bike rides. We're going to hit the road in Congo for the first edition of the Tour of the DRC, coming up on The World from PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World.
A cycling race is on our radar today for our GeoQuiz. Not the Tour de France. This one isn't such a well-known race yet. We're talking about the Tour of the DRC, as in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Nine cycling teams are competing, including riders from Tanzania, Rwanda, and Congo. The race course is about 500 miles long. One highlight will be when the riders negotiate the crowded and chaotic streets of the capital, Kinshasa. But what we want to know is where did the race start? Here are your clues. This Congolese city is on the banks of the Congo River, and it's the DRC's biggest seaport. And while the Tour de France has the steep Pyrenees midway through the race, the cyclists in the Tour de DRC get slammed with hills on day one. That's because the city we want you to name is built on steep hills. Okay, you get a bit of time to come up with that. We'll be back with the answer later in the program. Okay, so every road trip on two or four wheels needs a great tune, right? How about this one? Yep, that's Fela Kuti, and right now we're taking off for his native Nigeria. No need to book a flight, just pull up a chair, an armchair. We've invited Nigerian-American writer Chinelo Okparanta to share her picks for our armchair travel series this summer. And Okparanta says you just can't travel to Nigeria without reading her first pick. It's the classic Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe. Growing up, you know, I knew the name Chinua Achebe. I knew it before I actually understood the importance of his writing, of his name, of what he had done culturally for us. It was a, a name that was just spoken all around me. Things Fall Apart is a, is a story of our history. The book itself, you know, is set in pre-colonial to colonial Nigeria. He wrote Things Fall Apart at a time when stories about Africa were very racist and problematic and, you know, an African voice writing African stories, a Nigerian voice writing Nigerian stories. In a sense, he gave us back our dignity. I mean, when we talk uh, kind of traveling via the armchair, Things Fall Apart was written uh, more than 50 years ago. Do you think readers who read it today will find a Nigeria in it that still exists? I think that, you know, there is that ongoing but hopefully somewhat resolving issue of what colonialism has done to our country. There is still ongoing to an extent, but um, that's not the Nigeria you'll find now if you went back. You know, um, there are traditions that still linger, but, you know, the nature of tradition is that traditions do change. Now, the next book you've chosen is Half of a Yellow Sun by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Uh, it takes us to another point in Nigerian history, namely the Biafra War. Late 60s, am I right there? Yeah, the Biafra War, the Nigeria Biafra War, as some people call it. So 1967 to 1970. Why that book in particular? Because it's a different period in Nigeria's history. And I think it's a very important period and a period that has not been written about so much, in fiction at least. And uh, I think that book was very brave. And I think that it opened up the dialogue. Remind us just what the Biafra War was all about. It was it was an ethnic conflict, right? It was. Just generally speaking, it was a conflict uh, between the different groups, the Hausa and the Igbo people, mostly, and the Yoruba were sort of in there. Basically, there was a war. Biafra, which is the Igbo people, they decided that they wanted to form their own country. Ojuku declared the uh, he he was the leader at the time, and he declared the Republic of Biafra. I gather your parents are both survivors of Biafra. What what stories have they shared with you? Any of the stories I hear come from my mom. She's the storyteller of the family. 
We got folk tales from her, but we also got stories of the war from her. And the war was extra important to her because she actually lost her father mm. during the war. The, you know, a bomb exploded and a piece of it went to his heart and he died that way. That sort of broke apart the family. I'm actually currently working on a novel which might or might not center on the Biafran War, but I'm, not, I'm still working on it, so I'm not quite sure where it'll lead. So you selected a novel from the 50s, uh, a novel set in the uh, 60s and early 70s, and then a third book, uh, Love is Power or Something Like That, set in contemporary Nigeria. That's uh, by A. Igoni Barrett. Uh, Barrett writes short stories about an entirely different Nigeria than Adichie and Achebe. He definitely does. His book is completely contemporary. Uh, many, if not all, of the stories are set in Lagos. In the book, we see things like internet cafes, cell phones. It's basically a modern Nigeria juxtaposed with traditional elements. And and his storytelling is a more laid back sort of storytelling. There's less urgency to it in a way. And that's not to belittle, you know, his stories or anything. I actually believe that that's a good thing right. in a way too, that we can actually just tell our stories the day-to-day stories of people without the weight of topics such as colonialism and war, that's that's a sign of progress, I think. So, But I, I, I enjoyed his stories. There's, a, there's an easy humor in the way he tells them. Well, Chinela, let's end by talking a little bit about your book. Uh, it comes out this August. It's a collection of short stories titled Happiness Like Water. Where did the title come from? <laughs> that's a good question. The title comes from uh, one of the stories. There's a a character who is asked whether she's happy, and she says, well, you know, happiness is like water. She keeps trying to grab a hold of it, but it keeps slipping between her fingers. Um, And so that's where the title comes from. But it was actually interesting arriving at a title. We went through quite a few of them. So if you look online, I'm sure that you will see uh, a title that says, you know, the collection is too much wahala, which also means too much trouble. Mm. That's the word, or too much problems. Wahala is the word for for problem or trouble or issues. But I think we settled on happiness like water because the collection is really stories about the general pursuit of happiness. Fela Kuti, as you know, had this song, Water No Get Enemy. Uh, animistic gods and goddesses often transform out of river water or well water in Nigeria. Water often gets personified in Nigerian culture. Why is that? Mm-hmm. What's so special about water? Water is important. I mean, water is life. You know, without water, we can't live. So it would make sense that water would be personified. You know, I don't know that it's a Nigerian thing or like an Igbo thing or, you know, it's not. It's it's an everybody thing. Water is vital to life, you know, so maybe that's all it is. Chinelo Okparanta, her first book, a collection of short stories, is titled Happiness Like Water. It comes out this August. Chinelo, thank you for taking us on the short trip to your home of Nigeria. Thank you for having me.
All summer, we'll be exploring books that let you travel the world from the comfort of your home. Armchair traveling, we're calling it. We're asking for your help, and we've received some great responses so far. Debbie Cooper in New York recommended, among others, The Sheltering Sky by Paul Bowles. Great choice. It follows a couple originally from New York as they journey to the North African desert. Share your favorite armchair travel books for the summer at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, what having a driver's license means for undocumented immigrants in Vermont. And later, a German musician who brought his own piano to Istanbul's Taksim Square, where he played it for protesters and police alike. And even the policemen, they, they come and say, hey, you are very good in Turkish. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. When President Obama spoke today in front of Berlin's Brandenburg Gate, one of his biggest applause lines concerned a policy half a world away. Even as we remain vigilant about the threat of terrorism, we must move beyond the mindset of perpetual war. And in America, that means redoubling our efforts to close the prison at Guantanamo. It means The president's comment comes on a day that more than 150 health professionals published an open letter to him in the medical journal The Lancet. The doctors expressed concern about the 104 prisoners at Guantanamo who are on a hunger strike. Forty-four of them are being force-fed by a tube placed deep in the nose. One of those men is Ahmed Bel Bacha, a 43-year-old Algerian accountant. He was captured in Pakistan three months after the attacks of September 11, 2001. Six years ago, Bel Bacha was cleared for release, but that hasn't happened yet. So Bel Bacha joined the hunger strike. Like the other detainees, he can't speak to journalists, but his lawyer provided the BBC with this account from him describing what it's like to be force-fed. Bel Bacha's words are read here by an actor. When they force-feed us in Camp 6, they shackle our feet with metal chains and shackle our arms and hands to stomach with metal chains. Then they put us in a force-feeding chair and tie us with belts. Some of the newer medical staff they sent down, because there are so many strikers, are afraid during feedings and it shows. I do not think I am intimidating, as I weigh at most 120 pounds now. Still, when one of the new nurses, she was perhaps 40, started to feed me, I saw that her hands were shaking. I asked her whether it was her first time ever to force-feed someone. Yes, it is, she responded. The words there of Guantanamo inmate Ahmed Bel Bacha being read by an actor. In their open letter in The Lancet, the doctors urged President Obama to let them attend to the medical needs of the hunger strikers. The president also warned today against the dangers of perpetual war. The war in Syria is two years old with no clear end in sight and has produced 1.5 million refugees. More than 110,000 of them are living in the Zatari camp in Jordan. It's about five miles from the Syrian border on a dusty, windblown plain. The camp has grown so fast that there are not enough police officers to keep order. So refugees have taken to policing it themselves. Ben Gilbert has a story. Ahmed Salti and his family fled Syria after government shelling destroyed their home. 
Salty got a job here in the Zatari refugee camp, making $100 a month, keeping the area near his tent clean. But the bathrooms just a few steps away are unusable. Salty says kids trash the place at night. I ask him why he doesn't stop them. If I see a kid throw a stone, I can't interfere because he'll tell his family and that will lead to a fight, he says. This is the family's attitude. They will tell you, why did you beat him? He could do whatever he wants. Kids running wild is just one example of the lack of order in Zatari camp. There's no regular police force and barely any governmental structure in place here. Ahmed Salti compares life in Zatari to living in the jungle. His sister-in-law, Um Allah, says in Zatari, you're on your own. With small issues, like someone steals from you or beats you, if you are strong, then you can get your rights, she says. If not, then there's no one who will help you. Jordanians, they don't interfere. They say it's an internal issue, and you have to deal with it yourself. So, Syrians have established their own law and order in Zatari, for better or worse. They've fallen back on informal networks of family, relatives, and friends. In this area of the camp, at least, residents say it's pretty safe. They post neighborhood men to guard the women's bathroom at night, and they rely on community leaders to resolve disputes. One man, who has to be called Abu Walid, is a power broker and a person refugees approach to help resolve conflicts. He used to own a canning business in Dara province in Syria. He says the Syrian army destroyed it. In the camp, he has two tents, one for living in and one for receiving guests and conducting business. You can't enter the tent without being offered a cup of Arabic coffee served black. Abu Walid says all conflict resolution starts and ends with the coffee. And he's pouring a lot of it these days because he says Syrians are stressed out. Some of these families lost a wife, their kids, or they don't know what happened to their relatives, he says. So people are angry, and any small problem makes people explode. But thank God we're trying to resolve these things. One thing that really gets Abu Walid raging is how the UN is running the camp. He says UN workers break their promises and leave refugees in appalling conditions. Let me say we have spent as humanitarians a lot of time to successfully, I would say, um, save lives, to set up the basic services. We have maybe omitted to put in place the right governance structures. That's the UN's Killian Kleimschmidt, who manages Zatari. He says he appreciates what the refugees are going through, but they need to be more patient. He says conditions here may not be great, but they could be a lot worse. There's plenty of food and water, much of the camp has electricity, and there's access to health care and schools. Kleimschmidt says he knows that a lot of the Syrians' anger comes from what's happening back home. Here we have a very strong feeling amongst the people who are in the camp that they are mistreated, that Syria has been forgotten by the international community, that not enough is being done for them and Syria and against the enemy. For most of them here, that is the government of Syria. So they're feeling that we owe them. Last month, some refugees threatened aid workers with knives. In April, refugees seriously injured four Jordanian policemen during a riot. Kleimschmidt says he's been beaten up twice. He says he's now focusing on establishing civilian government and policing in the camp. It has an urban character of all the dynamics we'll find in, in the bad neighborhoods of any big city of, of the world. And so we're looking into best practice from uh, cleaning out uh, bad neighborhoods from Rio de Janeiro to New York and other, other places. That's what we're trying to, to look into.
In the end, Zatari may be a tough neighborhood, but it's nothing compared to what these Syrians have left behind. For The World, I'm Ben Gilbert. In a couple of weeks, a tour to France, and it'll be interesting to see how this year's tour goes, given the Lance Armstrong doping scandal and revelations that many other riders have also used performance-enhancing drugs. Hopefully one of cycling's newest competitions won't be tainted with any doping scandals. I'm referring to the tour of the DRC, which got underway this week. Teams of cyclists from nine countries are racing their way around the Democratic Republic of Congo. The tour of the DRC is on the radar of journalist Philip Gravich, and Philip, that's in part because a couple a couple of years ago, you went deep into Rwandan cycling culture for a New Yorker article you wrote about riders from there, uh, one of DR Congo's neighbors, and they've got a team in the race in Congo. ESPN isn't covering the tour to DRC yet, so as best as you can from New York, set the scene for us. What stage is the race at and where did the riders start? The riders started in the town of Matadi, which is near the Atlantic coast of Congo. It's basically where a lot of the goods that come in from the Atlantic uh, get uh, trucked up to Kinshasa, the capital, and it's um, it's a, a race that's supposed to go for uh, 11 days uh, with nine stages over a total of about 900 kilometers, crossing uh, from Matadi, uh, sort of northeast uh, towards the capital, Kinshasa, going into the capital, Kinshasa, which should be a wild scene. It's one of the chaotic cities of the earth, <laughs> and then continuing on uh, to end in Kikwit, which is uh, towards the center of the country. Uh, eastward again and quite deep into the Congo from the coast and an area that uh, for the most part is not associated with most people's sports map or even travel map, which is part of the uh, the excitement of this race, I think. So Matadi uh, in Congo is a starting point of the Tour de DRC. That's the answer to the geo quiz today. Add 500 miles and you get to the end of the race. D- did the Congolese have to pave any roads especially for this race? Because that that's not very evident in Congo, is it? No. And, you know, what I'm hearing is that uh, it's very evident that they didn't. You'd think that this first leg from Matadi uh, heading up would be among the better roads because that's where the heavy freight traffic that supplies the capital, a lot of it goes through there. By all accounts that I'm getting, it was pretty bad. Lots of crashes. Apparently some of them looked pretty bad. Wow. You know, it sounds like uh, it's going to be quite an adventure, a very scrappy race and uh, a new experience all around for everybody. In the midst of several conflicts that are on low boil right now, after more than 15 years of bloody fighting and government corruption constantly in the background, why is Congo hosting a bicycle race? They say in order to improve their international image. It's being described as the race for unity. It's being described as uh, they're putting a million dollars from the national budget into it. And one thing I did pick up is that the prize money is very high by African standards, 7,000 bucks for first place. So that's a pretty, you know, that's a lot. There's a lot of incentive for people to ride like hell to pick up that kind of money. And it's to see the country, to show people that you can get around in the country, I'm sure. Philip, you've been working on a book in which the Rwandan cycling team kind of plays a a part. I mean, I got to say, I associate you with your excellent coverage of the horrors of the Rwandan genocide in 1994. Why do you feel so strongly about cyclists from Rwanda? Well, the book I'm working on is really about living with the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide. One of the things that struck me about this team is uh, they're young kids, mostly from very poor backgrounds who would have no opportunity who are seeing the world and becoming worldly through this and who are striving in a very direct way with both physical pain and remaking themselves in a way that uh, parallels a lot of the struggles elsewhere and is seen that way by the people around them and by the people who turn out to watch them. 
And I imagine there's an element of that in every country. We certainly all have our sports heroes who in some way transcend uh, other aspects of uh, national division or national trouble or national identity and kind of reshape that. One of the amazing things is to have all of these African riders getting to know so much of Africa inch by inch by road. It seems like that could be highly symbolic. Yeah, it's, it's quite powerful. Does this really constitute diplomacy? I don't think it's going to make any concrete difference in that respect, but it can't hurt. It can only help for other levels of people sort of just connecting on the literally street level. Philip Gurevich with The New Yorker magazine. Thanks so much for your time. Always great talking to you. This next story is about something many of us take for granted, a driver's license. But if you're undocumented in the U.S., getting a license isn't a given. In fact, it's an issue that sparked debates around the country. As part of our global nation coverage, Sarah Harris of North Country Public Radio reports on how it's playing out in Vermont. Luis is a farmhand in East Montpelier, Vermont. He shows me around the dairy where he works. He explains where the feed goes and where the pregnant cows are kept. Now, the farm is beautiful, but it's also pretty far from everything. The closest town is a 15-minute drive, and there's no public transportation. For Luis, it's isolating. He's from Mexico and is living here illegally. So until just recently, he couldn't get a driver's license. He was stuck on the farm. Luis, who requested that I only use his first name, says, put yourself in our position. We're working for people here, but we have no freedom. Danilo Lopez knows this feeling, too. He's also from Mexico, also undocumented, and once worked at a dairy farm here. One day, he had an awful run-in with a bull. La más grave fue cuando me golpeé. Lucas tells me how the bull tossed him into the air. He landed hard, bruising his ribs, but his employer told him he couldn't take him to the hospital. He was too busy. And Lopez was afraid to call an ambulance and, without a license, couldn't drive himself in. It took a full day for Lopez to get medical care. Cases like this are triggering debates nationwide over whether immigrants here illegally should be allowed to drive. Arizona and Florida are among the states denying licenses, saying they encourage fraud. But a growing number of states, including Colorado, Connecticut, and Vermont, are approving licenses that say, yes, allow people, regardless of their status, to get licenses. There are still restrictions. People with these special licenses and ID cards can't board a plane or enter a federal building. But they can drive, get insured, and access basic services like food, health care, and banking. Back in Vermont, Seth Gardner, who owns the farm and employs Luis, supports the new license law. I, I almost think it boils down to a moral question um, because, well, like I said when I testified, is when you have workers that show up on your doorstep with all they have is a suitcase and they can't speak English, they're at your mercy. And that's not a good thing in some places, and it lends itself to abuse. And I feel that the driver's license is a way, a way to get your driver's license, is a way to empower those workers but it also sends a message, even though it's subtle, to the employer that these people at least have that right. Gardner talks about hiring undocumented workers openly. Vermont's dairy industry relies heavily on migrant workers to make up for labor shortages. But another dairy farmer in Vermont who requested anonymity says the issue isn't so simple. Just the fact of saying you're going to have a license and your life is going to change, the isolation is going to disappear and so forth, 
That I believe that's very unfair to to be leading the young immigrant labor force into believing that just that license is going to change their life that way. He feels federal immigration reform should lead the way, not state laws. There are also questions about enforcement. State police aren't allowed to ask people about their immigration status, but in northern Vermont, where Border Patrol maintains a strong presence, it's unclear if undocumented immigrants driving with one of the new licenses could risk deportation if they're pulled over. Luis, the farmhand, and his coworker, Marcos, aren't too worried about the risk. They plan to study for the road test and go in together to buy a used car. Where would you, where would you go? Everywhere. <laughs> for them, a license means not having to ask for help to go to the grocery store or the hospital. It means, they say, feeling a bit more free. For The World, I'm Sarah Harris, Winooski, Vermont. Ain't it the truth? If you or someone you know is undocumented, we'd like to hear how a driver's license or a lack of one affects your life. Just use the hashtag GlobalNation on Twitter or Facebook to share your story. You're listening to The World on PRI. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. You may have seen this photo last week. It's of a man dressed in a red shirt, wearing a fedora, playing piano in Istanbul's Taksim Square. German musician Davide Martello had loaded his grand piano on a trailer and towed it 300 miles from Sofia, Bulgaria. He told the BBC why. I see in the TV violence, insane violence in Turkey, and I couldn't understand why. And I just came to spread peace with my piano. He set up his piano at the edge of Gezi Park on Wednesday. The next night, hundreds of people gathered round, not just protesters. Martello says police officers also sat down to listen to him play. Yes, and the policemen and the people there was mixed the, the first time. So they all was all together and talking about what's going on for this moment, but just only for this moment. Okay, reality check here. This is the same place we all saw being hosed down by water cannon last week. But Martello says he felt safe. And even the policeman, they come and say, hey, you are very good in Turkish. He played a marathon concert at least 13 hours by most accounts. Then on Saturday, Martello set up his piano again when police began to clear Taksim Square. And suddenly the two girls was coming and I, I didn't breathe anymore and I had to run away. Martello got away, but get this, his piano was taken into custody. Well, yesterday he got it back from authorities. Davide Martello says he wants to play his grand piano in every capital of the world. Taksim Square was more of a side trip, but he's glad he went. This is my first experience like that in Texan. And I see the reaction about the people. I want to use this piano to get peace. I can use the music to change the mind of the people. It's an unusual way, but I think it works. Yeah, it certainly does work. In a couple of weeks, the German city of Hildesheim holds its annual Django Reinhardt Festival, celebrating the legendary French jazz guitarist. One of the more unusual acts taking the stage will be Monsieur Perinet. It's a group of young musicians from Colombia. As Marlon Bishop reports, there's something of a sensation back home. The story of Monsieur Perinet begins with a life-altering chance encounter on the Internet. And no, we're not talking about online dating. <laughs> Santiago Prieto and Nicolás Junca are two musicians from Bogotá. 
In the early 2000s, when they were still teenagers, they were fooling around on the peer-to-peer file-sharing network Kazaa and randomly downloaded a song with the intriguing title, Minor Swing. Right away, they fell for it. Hard. Here's Santiago Prieto. We were like 16 years old, and we were in love with the sound of, of Django. Django Reinhardt, that is, the brilliant French guitarist who invented the hot swing sound known as gypsy jazz in the 1930s and 40s. There was nobody in Colombia who could teach Prieto and Junca how to play the music, so they picked it up the old-fashioned way, by listening on repeat. Then we start playing like the basic rhythm, which is called la pompe, that is boom chick, boom chick, boom chick. And we start like uh, mixing with many instruments that were not from jazz, but more from Latin music. And we start like making our, our special flavor. They brought together a group of musician friends to play around with the sound, and Monsieur Perinet was born. The band replaced Django Reinhardt's guitar with the charango, a pint-sized string instrument from the Andes. They brought in the clarinet and the accordion, both used heavily in Colombian cumbia music. And they added lots of percussion. Last, they came up with a catchy name to sell the idea, Swing a la Colombiana, Swing, Colombian style. Monsieur Perinet brings rhythms from all over Latin America, from tango to Afro-Peruvian music and Mexican norteño, and superimposes them onto the French gypsy jazz template. According to vocalist Catalina Garcia, Latin music and swing make natural bedfellows. It's because our way of understanding music in Latin America is through dance and the body. So swing became something really familiar for us right away, because we can dance to it. That's where the bridge between Latin American music and swing lies. What nobody could have guessed is how much of a hit Monsieur Perinet's experiment in Colombian swing would be. Here at the Vive Latino Festival in Mexico City, one of Latin America's largest music festivals, a massive crowd has gathered to watch Monsieur Perinet perform. After the concert, 16-year-old Mexican fan Mitzi Alejandro is giddy. It's something brand new that has never been heard before. Something super tropical but with swing. I don't know, I just really like it. While the band has a fan base in Mexico, back home in Colombia, Monsieur Perinet has become a legitimate sensation. They pack major concert halls and get played regularly on the radio. And they've begun to take off elsewhere in South America, having already done tours in Peru and Brazil as well. This summer, they'll be on festival stages throughout Europe. Singer Catalina Garcia says the success has come as a shock. It is very surprising because our music is not the commercial and mainstream music. It's weird, but it's muy emocionante. (laughs) It's emocionante, exciting, she says. She says it's also exciting just to be making music in Colombia today. Over the past decade, the local scene has exploded with new bands, many of whom are experimenting with mixing international sounds and Colombian folkloric music in bold ways. And they've been getting newfound attention from the Latin music industry at large. Most agree, Colombia is hot right now. 
I think that because of the state of war, because of the violence that we lived since like 60 years ago, everybody in Colombia is trying to, by the language of art and music, is trying to change our face to the world. And looking at our roots, it's the only way that we can save our identity. So even when the inspiration is a dead French jazz guitarist, Monsieur Perinet makes it clear. They represent Colombia above all else. For The World, I'm Marlon Bishop. Tanto tiempo disfrutamos este amor Nuestras almas se acercaron Tanto así que yo guardo tu sabor Pero tú llevas también sabor a mí Si negaras mi presencia From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Take a solo and thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.